this city, she's always there for me. Every lonely night, she's there for me. My city screams. She needs me. She is my love. She is my life. And I am her spirit. This is now playing's Spirit Retrospective Series. On behalf of the mayor's office, I'd like to welcome you to this week's tax deduction. Part of the now playing DC comic movie series. Mark this moment. A new age begins. An age of great deeds. An age of great power. Hosted by Arnie. You are the only man who's ever escaped my cold embrace. Stuart. That is nothing I like better than kicking your ass all night long. Except maybe eggs. <laughs> and Jacob. He's a good man. You can trust him. This podcast will contain detailed plot spoilers and mild language. I feel like breaking all kinds of rules. Listener discretion is advised. Take it home, boys. Today we're discussing The Spirit, starring Sam J. Jones, Nana Vister, Bumper Robinson, directed by Michael Schultz. I've got spirit. Yes, I do. I've got spirit. How about you? It's Artie, co-host of Now Playing. Do you have the cure? That's what I'm looking for, Stuart in L.A. This is Jacob, and welcome to this week's tax deduction. You mean we get to write off this experience? <laughs> I want to write off half this year so far. <laughs> hey, you picked half this year. I didn't pick this. No, and this was an unpleasant discovery when we were looking at what remained in D.C. I remember Jacob said, well, Spirit's not really D.C., but it's kind of got reprinted as a D.C. property. And then when I looked into the history of the Spirit on film, I find out that, yes, before it was that Frank Miller atrocity, it was a TV pilot in 1986-1987. Yeah, DC did have the publishing rights when that Frank Miller movie came out. I, they had nothing to do with that film. We'll talk about it next week. But no, that Will Eisner's The Spirit goes way, way back, all the way to the 30s. Like, not originally a DC thing. But I guess we fit Tank Girl into DC. We're going to fit American Splendor. I, I guess if we got two weeks to fill, we could do The Spirit. So when do we get back to Marvel with Conan the Barbarian and... <laughs> well, that's a. Uh, I think that's different. That started as a book. It's not all that different. Red Sonia. Are you anxious to do these properties? I'm looking for an excuse not to. But I didn't want to do these ones, and I don't want to do those ones. So (laughs) yeah, I I drew this out of the Merc, and we were able to find it. That was the other thing. I'm like, oh, we'll never be able to find some lost TV movie. Eh, It's on YouTube. Well, it actually. Got an official release. Oh, thanks a lot, Yugoslavia. No, no. An official DVD release put out by the Warner Brothers Archive Collection, the same print-on-demand service that gave us Legend of the Superheroes. I don't know if that's a release if it's print-on-demand, but... Yeah, but you can get it. So that's something. That's something more than the dark alley of a Comic-Con. I'll admit, I picked it up. It has crystal clear picture, vibrant color... That's what I consider a commercial release versus, yeah, the bootlegs and the 
you get to see uh, where's the beef commercial in between your movie. <laughs> yes, I did get to see that. Uh, the, I did like the commercials in between this movie. Maybe the best part. There was something nicely orientating about it. It was like, oh, yes, I remember when that was running. I remember when that was a thing. I'll tell you, though, I didn't want to spend $15 on a TV movie of the spirits. I really didn't. <laughs> but I felt I had to because I went to the YouTube link you sent me, Stuart, and... <laughs> It was 68 minutes, and I'm like, that can't be right. We're missing half the movie, because every TV movie we've done has been in the neighborhood of 80 to 100 minutes, depending on the decade it came out. And in 1987, I was recording a lot of television on six-hour cassettes. I can tell you, there was 54 minutes of show for every hour. So I was expecting on a TV movie, 108 minutes. I figured the YouTube thing had to be maybe an abridged version that they got off syndication later on. That I get my DVD and no, it's 68 minutes. <laughs> How is this a movie? Yeah, well, it was a double feature. First of all, it should be said it wasn't a movie. It was a TV pilot. And then when they finally decided to release it, it was a double feature night. They actually put it out with National Lampoon's Class Reunion, which... Yeah, that was coming up next at the end of the YouTube video. <laughs> yeah. At least that's what was announced. Summer of 1987, they were dumping this. They were not picking it up for series. Same summer, I want to point out, as Superman 4. Not a happy time to be a superhero on film. No, and I do want to go back a little bit because I, I feel like not a lot of kind things are going to be said about the spirit over its television and theatrical versions. But Will Eisner, very important character when it comes to the comic book community. I mean, the biggest comic book awards arguably are the Eisner Awards. I mean, they named the Oscars of the comics after Will Eisner. Funny story about that. My first Comic-Con, actually, my first introduction to Will Eisner, I had no idea who that was, was I was attending a panel with Triumph, the uh, insult comic <laughs> yes. You met Triumph? I'm jealous. No, yeah, it was literally the guy sitting there with the dog on his hand, like, holding the mic to it. I mean, like, you could see him. They weren't trying to hide Rob Smigel. It, they just, he was letting it go. But someone was talking about how they were being introduced as, as winning a Will Eisner Award. And, of course, he compared it you know, as much heat as coming off of my poop. You know, it, everything was about <laughs> pooping and peeing on something. But I'm like, yes. yeah, Will Eisner, who's ever heard of him? And come to find out, he's actually the grandfather of the graphic novel and amazing figure. Yeah, he credited to creating that term. Now, there's there's a lot of history with the term graphic novel, but I mean, the famous stories, he told one writer slash artist to publish something as a graphic novel. The And, and so that's kind of the legend behind that term. But yeah, he, he came out with his own, you know, contract with God, which is about a rabbi struggling with faith. Uh, not the kind of comic book adaptations we typically talk about here on Now Playing, but the spirit... One of his original creations going all the way back to the 30s, this, you know, it, more or less what you see here is what the spirit was. He brought a different craft to it. Like he was really concerned about, you know, comics were a kid's thing, especially in the 30s. They were just reprinting old comic strips and binding them in books and selling them to kids. And he really wanted to do something more sophisticated, something geared towards adults. And then he got drafted in the war and people ghost wrote this. But it was really when he came back from World War II that the spirit took off like as this sophisticated like adult humor like you know not potty mouth type stuff but it it would 
really interest adults more. All the femme fatales and the spirit and his humor, which was low end highbrow, like it, and just the craft that he brought to it, the the way he would lay out the pages and panels. Like he, Will Eisner has written a few books on how to create comics. Like this is someone that took the medium very seriously, and even doing this detective noir creation that that went on for decades. And other people, I mean, Alan Moore has written spirit stories. And Neil Gaiman has d- done spirit stories. Like, big creators have wanted to do stories about this character. I mean, it's one of those, like, kind of unsung heroes. Like, outside of the comic book community, I don't think many people have heard the spirit. I don't think many people inside the comic book community today know about the spirit or really know who Will Eisner or about his legacy. I, you know, have been going to comic conventions for a long time. Before going to comic cons, I had never heard of Will Eisner. I now had heard a lot about Will Eisner, and I know Eisner Award winners. We have an Eisner Award nominee doing the art for our book, but I didn't know anything he'd really done. I just knew he was one of those names up there with, like, Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko, and I knew of the spirit, and I thought it was a newspaper strip that I put in the same category as Brenda Starr and The Phantom and those other boring (laughs) strips I didn't read. Yeah, it's Dick Tracy, right? I mean, it it seems to be, without ever having read it, it seems like Dick Tracy with a little bit more film noir mixed in. Like it, like someone that's actually a fan of the Maltese Falcon tried to bring Dick Tracy into that world. Yeah, I, I think you would enjoy this a whole lot more than Dick Tracy. I mean, Dick Tracy was written for kids. Eisner wasn't interested in that. He did want to write comic books for adults. That's a, like Contract with God is probably his biggest, outside the spirit, his biggest thing. And like I said, that, that, that's about a rabbi struggling with his faith. And it's beautiful. It reads great. It, he really brought a craft to the comic book medium. In DC, they got the rights to this character. 2007, they published about 36 issues of The Spirit, plus some reprints of the original material. I read it for about a year when Darwin Cook was writing and doing the art. He's, he's got a great artistic style that I like. And they're a lot of fun. Like, yeah, if you want... Fun detective, noir, lots of femme fatales. I I think we're going to talk about a lot of women throughout these movies. Like, that's what the spirit's about. So does this TV movie have the spirit of the spirit? Is it comedic like this and campy? Well... I, I think they went for comedy in this TV movie. I don't know if they landed. The, the, the comic works a lot better. It, it actually hits its jokes. And I do got to say, I mean, we're going to talk about Yubi in this movie. There was a character, Ebony White, who Yubi is based off of, which if you go back to the 30s stuff, it unfortunately contains a lot of those minstrel type stereotypes that you would see in art with African-Americans back then that... Eisner did that change thankfully so if if you pick up some of that original stuff and turned off by that it vastly improves in the 50s when he comes back from the war I have seen that stuff I did try to find out who Will Eisner was I eventually realized that he was fictionalized in a book I had read there's a novel called The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay Yeah, and I read that without totally really understanding and I'm like I feel like there's a lot of real history being referenced here that I don't know anything about and it turns out that yes one of the characters indeed was largely based on Will Eisner and that yeah Will Eisner is yeah involved in the spirit involved in comic books that aren't 
about superheroes. I did actually pick a few of them up. I read one, Protocols of Zion. I think it was one of the last things they ever did. But yeah, it was about a Jewish propaganda that, that it's, I mean, it was historical. It was, yeah. it was actually very interesting. But subject matter you would not think would be easily translated. No, Dropsy Avenue, which is about the history of a street over decades, and it's fascinating. Yeah, I, I think the guy's really interesting, and it's misleading. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but his signature looks almost yes. identical to Walt Disney. So I just presumed when I picked it up that I was going to read something children's related. It's not Walt Disney, guys. Definitely not. Yeah, I actually try to research this and find out the background behind this for this podcast, because if you look at Will Eisner's signature, it's very similar to that Walt Disney with the curly W and the very. circle above the eye. It, when I saw them side by side in my research, there are slight variations. I guess Walt Disney actually couldn't sign his name like that, and that was a marketing thing that came out after Eisner had created his signature signature. Oh. So, But yeah, they are very similar, and I always wondered, is there some feud between the two, but it it just looks like a coincidence, I guess. Or the marketers took the, the, his signature and, and turned <laughs> Waltz into that. That's interesting. Why not? Disney steals everything else. Or they buy it. <laughs> uh, says the guy that's a Marvel fan, Star Wars fan. Yeah, I mean, I, I get it that you'd be a little bitter about that stuff. But, hey, uh, don't, yeah. don't make fun of my Disney Star Wars tattoos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you have a huge Disney collection now. Fuck you. Yes, I do. <laughs> but yeah, I never read a spirit comic, but I did look at some of the art in, in my research trying to understand Will Eisner. And, and keep in mind, this was research done years ago, not for this podcast, just to try to get a sense of why this guy is considered historically important. And yes, uh, definitely. It was weird because all the other characters, unlike Dick Tracy, where, you know, you had characters with weird faces that looked inhuman Everyone in the spirit looked like a human being, except for Ebony White. And unfortunately, it looked like a tar baby walking around with regular people. It was It's really notably take you out of it distracting. And I think his legacy is here in this movie, but they wisely brought in some political correctness. Much needed. And he did change that too later. Like, that, that was a thing of the times, and he realized that was wrong. And even though the look was like that, the way the character talked, it wasn't so stereotypical. Stereotypically, he's actually a very smart character, so he didn't go with all the stereotypes. But yeah, that the look is very off-putting. So I, you know, I feel that's fair to bring up and warn people about. Like, if you pick up the old stuff, just be prepared. Yeah, it's it's alarming. But I, what what I understand was that he was maybe referencing Batman. That this was the Robin to Spirit's Batman. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. That was the thing to do. But yeah, Spirit. I don't know anything about him, and I guess I'm about to learn a whole lot. Here with this ABC movie. 1986, it was filmed for $2 million. Wow. Ooh. They spent a lot on where to go up Sam Jones's nose. Somebody pocketed that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, this looks like a $2 million production. I could believe that. I mean, you got to do a lot of, you know, build sets and what have you here. I mean. They had to make a giant cake. I hope Will Eisner made some dough. Yeah, Will Eisner was still alive. He still had some control over the property. People were already trying to develop this since the late 70s, really. There have been people trying to make movies or animated movies based on the spirit. But this was the thing that made it to the screen. ABC said, yes, we want to do a series. And then all of those people got laid off. 
and the pilot was made, and the new people apparently took a look at it and said, nah, we don't want to do this. Typically happens to a lot of things. You know, it's not a judgment of quality. It's just typically when you see a change in leadership anywhere, there's no love for old properties. They become orphans. And so this sat on a shelf for a year, and due to a letter-writing campaign that started actually at Comic-Con, they were able to get it broadcast for one night only. And someone VHS'd it and put it on YouTube eventually. (laughs) It's better than some things. Hey, again, official DVD release. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it fares better than a lot of TV pilots. I mean, most of the time in pilot season, there are 50, 60, 80 projects like this, and they all just go away, and and nobody ever sees any of them. But luckily or unluckily, here we are to talk about it. But you've got a good pedigree here. I mean, this is from the writer of Die Hard. Yes. And he also wrote 48 Hours. I mean, this should give you some hope that it's a higher than your average A-team episode plot. And the director of The Last Dragon? Yeah, Michael Schultz is a big-time director. He made many landmark black comedies, Cooley High, Car Wash, Crush Groove, that Fat Boys movie, Disorderlies. He's even working today. He he does Blackish and Arrow. So he he's still using these skills, superhero and black comedy. I, I think that he's known for that and made a very long career out of it. Uh, hit or miss, he was responsible for Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, one of the worst musicals I've ever seen. Uh, did not have the Beatles, by the way. He couldn't get them, so they used the Bee Gees. very different bands almost the same they start with b yeah they're near each other in the pop albums in the 70s (laughs) just marinate on that and if you're curious i dare you to sit through it it's painful i mean come on we got flash oh he'll save every one of us he looks totally different but i will admit if i ever thought we would be discussing sam J. jones would be somehow reviewing Flash Gordon against my highest protests. But no, here he is seven years later and probably 30 pounds of muscle lighter. Yeah, I, I'm like, I recognize that voice. Like, it was the voice that tipped me off that made me go look him up. Yeah, he looks very different. He doesn't have that blonde hair anymore. Yeah, I don't think he looks that different. I think it's the hairdo. You know, he had that shock blonde hairdo that was unnatural. And here he's allowed to have a more darker shade that's probably closer to the one he really had. You know, maybe you just couldn't see it because of the the lighting or something like that. This <laughs> this movie, they try for comic book here. I, I do feel like we're going to get a lot of primary colors. But yeah, two million budget versus what they had for Flash Gordon. It's not quite the same production. See, and for me, the big name that I recognized, I did not recognize Sam J. Jones, but Nana Vister from Deep Space Nine. She was Major Kira, the basically the first officer, the Bajoran, who was going back and forth between Hawk and the planet. Yeah, don't talk to me about Deep Space Nine. That one never held my interest. I could never sit through that show. Deep Space Nine got real good in the later seasons. Nana never became a good actress, though. Looking her up, I had no memory of this. She was also Pamela Voorhees in that 2009 Friday the 13th. Oh, they cut her head off. Okay. Good for her. If only they'd done it here. All right, Arnie. I think you got to give them the plot. We'll get through Spirit 1987. Sam Jones plays Denny Colt a police detective investigating the murder of his mentor, retired officer Simon Teasdale. The elder officer had been writing a book called Crime of the Century, Art Theft at the Roxton, 
Believing Teasdale may have uncovered a real theft, Denny investigates the museum, but the curator claims there's never been a robbery there. But his inquiries cause Bruno, one of the museum's teamsters, to say he has information. Bruno and Denny meet at the pier, but the teamster shoots the cop and leaves him for dead. In fact, Denny barely survived. He crawled out of the water in a graveyard of cardboard graves, where he was fixed up by juvenile delinquent Yubi. But now that everyone believes he's dead, Denny believes he has an advantage, so he lives in secret and puts on the world's smallest mask to fight crime <laughs> as the spirit. He reveals his identity only to his former police commissioner, Dolan, and Dolan's daughter, Ellen, played by Nana Visitor, has the hots for the mysterious masked man. But it turns out the theft was masterminded by Ellen's friend, socialite Pigel Roxton. The widow has been married to the museum benefactor, but with him dead, Pigel had seduced Bruno and put her plot into motion where they created detailed fakes of the artworks and sold the originals. The spirit confronts the thieves. He and Ellen are captured, but he breaks out and has a sword fight with Bruno. Bruno is caught by the police, but Pigel escapes and the spirit remains the protector of Central City as credits roll. It's an origin story. It's your TV pilot. It's going to set up your characters. And I watched a lot of cop shows in the 80s and crime shows. Remington Steel, Hunter, Riptide, A-Team. I was watching all these shows. I see the hallmarks here. 87 feels a little late for this kind of film, but Hunter went on into the 90s. Now, you know what? This is where I became an expert. I want to just put it out there. For much of my early childhood, I didn't watch a lot of TV. It wasn't that I wasn't allowed. I just had a very active social life, and I just was never around to watch TV. You were the most popular seven-year-old with that buzzing social life. You were the socialite of the playground. Well, I mean, no, I'm just saying I was always like in soccer plays, computer class. I just was very, you know, I was stimulated. What, what I was saying is that, and then seventh grade happened and I wasn't, I was home a lot, watching a lot of television and I became an expert. I knew every hour what was on of every network at the time. You did. It was stunning. Like I was the TV guy between us. Every so often we did like intersect and talk about V or something but really we had movies i was the tv guy all of a sudden 1987 you're like have you seen head of the class what about this growing pains hey sledgehammer <laughs> yes yeah, sledgehammer thank you for bringing it up abc i felt like that must have been what they were waffling between do we green light this or do we green light the other campy kind of spy show that with the they went with the one that was more obviously comedy i'm not sure if this is supposed to be funny like batman 66 or whether it was just sort of so arch and square that you can't treat it seriously and so therefore by it not being serious it somehow could be classified as comedy yeah i was wondering about the actual skill of the writer to find out it's the guy who did die hard it blows my mind because this feels campy but i was wondering are they going for actual jokes here like you're gonna have denny he's gonna go r around saying a lot of platitudes that never really match the situation like adam west kind of stuff i feel like you know yeah he would tell people to get good grades and get your rest well he would say stuff like murder is never a laughing matter i'm like where's okay laughing that should be a pun there's no one laughing there's no one making a joke like it falls flat i think the joke is that he is so straight laced i definitely think there's intentional humor here i'm not going to say it's funny like he's from arm fit and he keeps showing people his badge and everybody thinks it's armpit Ugh. 
that is an awful joke. That joke was a groaner the first time, and it was an eye roller the second time. And then the next seven times. But by the, like, eighth time they said it, I found myself laughing, like, they're not going to let this armpit thing go. <laughs> Sometimes a joke can go that way. When they absolutely insist to keep telling it until you laugh, you'll just laugh out of desperation. It worked. You know, here's the thing. It's not a show I would watch now. But I could see myself watching it back in 1987. I would have enjoyed... I watched Sledgehammer. I watched The Charmings, which came on after Sledgehammer, which was about Snow White and Prince Charming living in suburbia, grown up. It was really bad. It's actually marvelous. You just can't believe it. I remember... Like specific plot lines from episodes of that. It's it's oh. Doesn't this feel like it could be on right afterwards? Doesn't it just kind of fit that vibe? It it just skates in that tone between kind of outlandish camp and sort of a generic, straightforward police cop show. It feels like an episode out of its time, though, because I think in the 70s, this would have worked, you know, a little bit wry in that kind of ironic way. By the 80s, if you're looking for comedic action, they still went different ways. I mean, you look at the ABC hour-long shows of the time. I mean, we're talking MacGyver, Spencer for Hire. This is so much lighter than those. As a half-hour sitcom, given that this is 90 minutes, I don't think that's what they were going for. And as a hour-long police drama with a little bit of levity, maybe... But they were the network that had Moonlighting. They were the network that had Sledgehammer. I do feel like they were playing with playful dramas and crime fighters. I I do feel like they were kind of pioneering the dramedy, as it were, or, you know, the the idea of a half-hour drama or hour-long comedy. Sure, Doogie Howser and Wonder Years. I feel like this doesn't quite know what it's going to be, but I feel like it could make friends with everything (laughs) else that was on ABC at the time. So it doesn't feel so strange that it was under consideration. Whether it should have been greenlit, I guess we can get into it here. But our thoughts on that must depend on what you think of what Sam Jones is doing for this. Is, Is he working for you or has he ever worked for you as a square hero? I liked him in Ted. I can't even comment on that. I yeah. never saw that. Don't I didn't. He, he was in that. The teddy bear that smokes weed. Yes, he was in that. That is the only Sam J. Jones role I enjoy. Is because in Ted, Mark Wahlberg and the bear are huge Flash fans, and then they meet Sam J. Jones. Okay, well, you know what? I did end up rewatching Flash Gordon because, you know, it was something that I had wondered about Star Wars and if it had come first. I didn't, I don't think it's this atrocity, but I do think it's camp. And I do think that that oftentimes gets misconstrued and maybe overstays its welcome. And I think that he's sort of an actor that maybe, you know, he's got the look. He's handsome and buff and, and maybe that's enough. The fact that he doesn't have acting skills could actually be almost an asset because he's never he's always the butt of the joke he's the straight man he's not going to be the one making you laugh one of the changes they make to denny colt here in the original comics they started out taking place in new york and then that was changed to central city but denny was a detective in that city here he's what he's some backwoods hick cop it it feels like like they keep making that armpit joke like they've never heard of armfet and he's come down to the big city to investigate a murder 
Yeah, we've all seen exactly maybe two minutes of Armfet. The, the, <laughs> in the dark. <laughs> the show kicks off with a cabin exploding in fire and a retired cop turned author crawling out of his home and being met by, yes, Denny Colt as he arrives in a squad car, dying in his arms, clutching the title page to his manuscript that had been robbed. The reason he had been killed was that he had this new manuscript that was going to blow the lid off of the Roxton Museum, which is in (laughs) Central City. Only... Denny Colt and one other person knew he was writing this book. So that's what kind of sets things in motion. I didn't get the sense that it was really anywhere. I mean, I think it's almost a mistake that he is from a different place. Well, that's what I'm saying. It feels like they bring him there in Sam Jones. I, is he just goofy? Is he absent-minded? Is he undereducated because he's from some little town like you. I don't really know. I It would have made sense just to make him a cop already on the force in Central City. Like, I feel like that would have grounded him better because I'm now I'm wondering what is he supposed to be the butt of every joke? Is it what is his reasoning for being this butt of the joke? I get it in the comic here. I'm not sure what it is because they've changed that story and I'm, I'm bringing in assumptions from where they've made him originate. And you guys are helping clarify something for me because I understand that for the first half this movie or at least the first quarter he's walking around with that armpit badge but he's dealing with commissioner dolan and asking for warrants and things later on he and commissioner dolan are like co-conspirators he's like the batman to commissioner dolan's commissioner gordon and so i was trying to figure it all out like was he just a lowly cop but commissioner dolan was his superior you guys are spelling out for me he's not even from this city and so that makes his entire relationship with everybody a little bit more suspect at one point, he even says murder doesn't respect state lines. I'm like, eh, it kind of does. Like, you can't just go to another state. You got to get permission. Like, yeah, yeah, he is. I don't even think Central City is in the same state that Armfet's in. He is there because as Severin is dying, the, his mentor is dying in his arms. He says, I sent a letter to this museum curator, I guess just warning him, giving him a heads up saying, hey, I'm going to smear you in your museum and call you forgerers. I mean, I guess that's a pretty good lead. If that's the only other person that knew you wrote this and now the manuscript is stolen and you're murdered and your house is burned down. Yeah, I guess I would follow up with that guy, too. But he has no jurisdiction. And yeah, it's a real Nick Cage Wickerman situation here. Yeah. L.A. cop going to some island off of Seattle. Beverly Hills cop would be more my reference, but you go Wickerman. <laughs> I feel this is much more in Wickerman territory than Beverly Hills cop. <laughs> I, I, it definitely is not Beverly Hills cop. You know, you can tell from the second he gets out of the cab, this guy is posing. You know, he's wearing a trench coat and hat. Even it's broad daylight, not a rain cloud in the sky. And... It feels like sunny L.A., but they're going to sell the idea that this is a noir Dick Tracy world. I don't, you know, it's cheap. I kind of enjoy the look of this movie. I do feel like there is a charm, even when the sets are cardboard, even when I can see, you know, that it's a low-budget production. I do feel like there's something charming about them trying to pull this off. Oh, I thought I'd be the only one saying that. I'm glad to hear you say it, because when he rolls up in that cab... That cab is straight out of the 70s. You know, they really go for even his ride into Central City or L.A. 
is from another time. And the colors they used, at least the way they looked on the official release, were vibrant. I mean, later on, his blue suit, or even in these early scenes, his purple-blue pants, are really got this aesthetic style that worked for me. It's one of the few things in the production that really did. I can't say that I found all the sets charming or quaint. I found a lot of them just cheap and pathetic. But as far as the costume design and things, the fact that he is damn set on wearing that trench coat, he he is committed <laughs> to that fashion statement. The reference has got to be Christopher Reeve, Clark Kent, and what Richard Donner did in the Superman movies. That's what they're trying to do here on the small screen. Superman hadn't been in a TV show since George Reeve, the 50s. Superboy would come out the next year. This was the first attempt to translate what the movies had done for Superman, I think, to the small screen. And, of course, a little bit of Adam West squareness as well. But those were the two things that, you know, if you say comic book, TV show, those would be the two things that people in 1986, 1987 would have as a reference. And that's what they're going for here. And speaking of Batman, I do love the introduction of UB, the Robin of this series. We get Denny. He's at this. What is it? Is it a fundraiser for the museum? I, I don't quite get what's going on. They're giving speeches. There are a bunch of kids in wheelchairs hanging out. They said they raised a million dollars, so I think it is a fundraiser. But they don't say for what? <laughs> I think it's for the museum, and they just bring out the wheelchair kids because they're a good, sympathetic thing. It's like where you show sad puppies when you ask for yeah. money for animal shelters. I mean, they're, they're going to come back to this museum, too. We're told they're junior archaeologists, so I'm thinking Indiana Jones. I'm thinking, oh, they're just trying to connect with a kid audience. You know, they just know that probably the people that are most likely to want to watch this week after week are probably 12, 13, 14 years old. And we weren't that far away from young Indiana Jones on ABC. And they probably want to be friends with UB because he's got the coolest stuff. He's like selling what? They're supposed to be factory rejects of Walkmans because the rewind button doesn't work. But man, they're as hot as a Madonna concert. Yes. Look, we're going to go to a Rick James concert in this. We got Madonna. Yeah. Well, that was actually a line. I'm quoting Stephen D'Souza, writer of Predator, 48 Hours, uh, Die Hard. Yes, uh, he's writing for this young character by dropping references. You know, he's he's uncrating the latest Whitney Houston album. Oh, We're trying okay. to be hip here. Yes, this is our in as a young, hip character who's selling, yes, hot merchandise to disadvantaged children who you know, are apparently spending $10 for Broken Walkman. And it allows Colt to introduce himself to show that he's not going to be too rough on the guy. He lets him off with a warning and it starts, I don't know, the beginning of some kind of friendship. Not a beautiful one, but a friendship. <laughs> He'll save him from death. The next time they meet, <laughs> uh, Denny will have three slugs in his stomach and this kid will help him out. But yeah, there is slapstick stuff going on. Like there's a purse snatcher that Denny goes after and like throws him out of the bushes and it lands on the table right in front of Pajel and Ellen. Like uh, the sl obvious slapstick stuff doesn't work for me. I kind of go with the vibe of this film, except when they go real broad. Yeah, they're trying to introduce everybody at once. I mean, that is the idea. TV, before the first commercial break, we want you to meet all the characters. We it's So you just have this, yes, this museum gala function where we're just, for no real reason, all these characters are mingling around. And yes, the love interest and the villainess are both here to admire how handsome and noble this new crime fighter must be. All right. Truth be told, I had to watch this 
movie twice. First of all, it wasn't a huge expenditure at 68 minutes. I mean, I watched <laughs> The Watchmen five times at four hours. So to watch this twice wasn't a big deal. But second of all, I didn't realize this scene was going to be so damn important. Because by the end of the movie, the first time I'm like, wait, who the hell's Pajel? What the hell kind of name is Pajel? But it's all... <laughs> that I still wonder. <laughs> is that a real name? Well, it, it is supposed to be... I, I think she's from Turkey in the comic. She is not supposed to be just some rich white lady in America. Okay, I thought it was an anagram. I kept trying to rearrange the letters <laughs> to spell like something diabolical. Gelp? Yeah, I got nowhere with it. <laughs> but the fact that here, I knew because of Deep Space Nine that Ellen Dolan was going to be, like, the main female, you know? I Again, going back to those shows, like, Knight Rider and things, there's always that female love interest who's there. In Knight Rider, she's fixing the car while Michael Knight romances a different woman every week, but you always wonder, there's the tension there. So I knew who she would be, and then she's got this friend, Pigel, who's there running this museum benefit, and is just, like, saying lewd things, like, Denny Colt, she asks if he wants to ride a filly. I mean, I thought she was there as the body comic relief sidekick for Ellen. So when she turned out to be a major plot point, I'm like, wait, how does she factor into any of this beyond being Ellen's friend? Yeah, all I know is she was married to the guy who owned the museum or something, but he's dead. Yeah, Roxton. That was why you would take note of her if you took note of her all. Her last name is the name of that book that was going to blow the lid on forgery. And, you know, again, bright sunlight, midday, and she's all dressed up in black. You know, a, a villainous character, a villainous color. They were telling us in little and subtle ways, but I agree, there's not enough here for you to really pay attention to her. They're, they either should have tried more or not had her introduced yet, but she doesn't really make an impact until it's almost too late. What we're supposed to believe is that the letter got to the museum curator, Simon Teasdale, and he is there uncrating artifacts and has no time, will not help Denny figure out who might have murdered Severin. Yeah, and of course, the museum curator is the biggest red herring of all. He's such a prissy guy who tries to ignore Denny and just write him off and big business and all that, you just think he's the obvious villain. He is going to be the one. It is a effective red herring because I didn't expect this movie to actually pull one over on me. <laughs> but come on, when Bruno comes out from the Teamsters to tell Denny, hey, meet me at Pier 10 and I'll, I'll give you the real scoop. I had no idea what was going on. Bruno is played by John Allen, who's a familiar face to me from a lot of... 80s TV and some other movies. So I was like, okay, maybe he is this guy who he says he is. I mean, looking him up, I'm like, I knew that face. He was on Remington Steel. He was on Knight Rider. He was on V. So I had no reason to necessarily think he was a heavy. Well, he's a heavy, but you thought he could be an ally? I mean, I, I, I thought he could be the Teamster informant. I knew enough about the spirit to know that he was killed and came back from the dead. So I had a feeling when someone says, hey, I got important information, but I'm not going to tell you until we meet in a dark place on Pier 10 in the middle of the night. I mean, uh, you're asking for trouble. And sure enough, he shows up in a black trench coat shooting a gun. All right. And you knew more about the spirit than I did, though, because I knew nothing about him. I didn't know he died. 
Well, he he doesn't really die. In the comic, there's a whole thing where one of his arch nemesis does some experiment on him that puts him in suspended animation. Everyone thinks he's dead. Might get into that a little bit next week if my memory serves correctly. But yeah, the, the whole point of the spirit is that he was a cop, basically. Everyone assumes he's dead. So then he's able to go... Um, on that gray side of the law as a, you know, finger quote superhero. He, he doesn't have any powers per se, but no one knows who he is. He puts on that domino mask, wears that bright blue suit. And he's able to beat information out of people. So I'm waiting for that to happen. This is just over an hour long and we're going to get that at about the 16 minute mark. It, it actually feels like a very long way into this film for that to happen for as short as, as it is. Well, you know, they got to get it all in before the first commercial break, which is 15, 18 minutes into a movie and uh you know basically by the time they go out for commercial yeah he has been shot falls off the pier and comes crawling to the wildwood graveyard which i kind of like i mean i know it looks cheap and all but <laughs> it looks like disney's haunted mansion oh don't do not dis haunted mansion like that haunted mansion's <laughs> a million times better than this this looks like my neighbor who goes to the spirit store and gets some foam grave heads to put in front of his yard every year this is cheap as hell and the reason i think it is is because this is a set for the show they actually went out on location for some of these shots you can tell they were shooting outdoors this is his home base right i mean they built this to last he was always going to be in this graveyard hanging out with ubi and so they brought in the dry ice machine and the cardboard headstones if anything yells Batman 66, it is this set. It is so goofy with that lightning going off in the background. But yeah, the spirit's hideout is in a tomb. Like, that's where he hangs out when he's not fighting crime. That's nice. I, I think that was the right choice. And again, Batman 66 campy. I would get more of that flavor if the writing were snappy in the way exactly. that, that show was. But the more that they can do those kinds of touches, I think the better off this property is. I think the reason why this project probably never got greenlit is that it never finds the right tone. But in moments like this, when we're in the graveyard, I feel like they're getting closer to where they wanted to be. Why is Yubi there? He's he's with another kid who has a crate of records that he stole. Yeah, this is Yubi's supplier. Everything that Yubi sells, he gets from this other kid. We don't want that our one of our supporting characters to be thought of as a criminal, per se. So he's got to make this stance about, yeah, I might sell merchandise, you know, on the side, but I never sell stolen merchandise. Yeah, he, you find out from Denny that those Walkmans weren't factory rejects. They were just stolen, and Yubi was shocked by that. That really is a surprise to him. He thinks he's getting stuff that's been discarded when they're really stolen goods. Right. And this is where they're also uncrating the new Whitney Houston album, which turns out to be actually a, a zombie. You know, it's just a, a silly joke to preface the fact that, yes, here comes Denny Colt like a zombie moaning and stumbling towards them. And the supplier gets scared off. We never see him again. But UB from this point forward will be hanging out in the graveyard, checking in on his friend, getting him medical supplies, nursing him back to health and... 
not really helping the rest of this story. I feel like set up for future episodes and a relatable character for young audiences, but not very important to the art heist storyline. And he goes straight. I mean, over the course, we see he's going from selling those broken, stolen tape decks to the spirit makes him study and he doesn't like it, but he does it. So he's still going to bet on wheelchair races. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he's not without. I, I think that that would have been something they would have kept throughout the series, that he was always on the grift. But yeah, I, I, yeah, you're right. He's doing his homework. And so, again, that's the spirit being square and telling, you know, do your chores, do your homework. Is it, is it weird? I wish they went a bit more square or, or just more serious. Like, I like when the spirit, he's doing this zombie thing and he's he, as he's crawling out of the ocean and scaring these kids. I just wish it didn't go on for so long where, like, he's supposed to be like this headless guy with the way his trench coat's over his head. It's just like that stuff doesn't work. But to go with this zombie vibe. Yeah, that, that could have been fun. They just again, they take it too far. Like everything in this, I think they just take the jokes a bit too far where they're not funny. Well, they're not funny. I don't I don't think it takes particularly long, Jacob. I mean, what you're talking about is a matter of seconds. What what you're talking about is that every second you're not laughing is a second <laughs> that feels like it's too long. And yeah. then I'll agree with you. I mean, I think that they got sort of a fun, campy world. I'm more or less okay with our lead, our supporting characters, accepting it on the premise that this was a 1986-87 TV movie. I'm more or less okay. And I can't believe I'm saying that because this is a TV movie about a superhero. I was expecting to hate it by 20 minutes in. God knows, usually I'm the first one to lose my patience with this kind of thing. But I'm okay with this, I think. You're doing better than I am. This thing's 68 minutes and by 20, I'm like really having a struggle with it. The fact that this is his graveyard, that's his home base, I could actually go with that. But then when you bring other characters in, and this is also supposed to be the graveyard where he's buried, the only thing that I went with is when they're like, well, that's a pretty cheap headstone. I'm like, yeah, the whole thing's pretty cheap. <laughs> <laughs> but that was the commercial break. So by, you know, 18, 20 minutes in, yes, that, that we come back from commercial break and everyone thinks that Denny is dead. Uh, we get more to know about Commissioner Doland, who was there in the early scenes, refusing to help Denny investigating the Roxton forgeries. He's like, I know them. They're not guilty. I don't want to get involved. And then when he finds out Denny is killed, he's in remorse. He feels... Yeah, Anway and Laissez-Faire killed him, and he's responsible. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I wish the writing were better, but uh, I do feel <laughs> like this could be a a fun relationship. Okay, I get that Dolan feels remorse, and so he's going to help him out. I get that. It's just the bizarre writing that's going on throughout this. It is very strange. It's stilted, and it's inconsistent. If it was all like this, I might be willing to go with it more than when you just get one of these lines that comes out of the blue, and you're like, did he really say that? Well, I'm going to throw something out there. Steven D'Souza, yes, wrote many big hit action movies. I'm thinking that they might have had the leading man write his own jokes, though. I mean, 48 Hours, you can't tell me Eddie Murphy wasn't ad-libbing. Die Hard, I'm sure Bruce Willis was ad-libbing. Given the fact that it was written for Sinatra, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, Predator, Running Man, I I gotta believe even Arnold. They, if Arnold didn't write his own lines, someone came in and said, we need to get Arnold some good lines. <laughs> but if you look at the later Stephen D'Souza scripts, Judge Dredd, the Stallone one, or Street Ooh. Fighter with Jean-Claude Van Damme. Oh, ouch. Wow, this isn't getting any better. <laughs> yeah, I think it's more in lines with the writing we're seeing here. 
I think what we're seeing is Steven D'Souza before big celebrity Hollywood comes in. and So Sam Jones not big enough to write his own lines. Yeah, I guess that's what I'm saying is Sam Jones is no writer. He can't give himself the lines that weren't written for him to make this character more fun. But, you know, he does give himself some spanking blue outfit here. It's I wish we had an explanation, but on the other hand, how could you explain that suit? I just felt like, was that the suit underneath his trench coat? It was. Those were the same color pants he had under that trench coat in the museum scene earlier. Oh, I didn't realize that. That's what I assumed. I mean, that that is the trademark of the spirit, that blue suit, the red tie. So I feel like they, they at least capture the look here. You know, people mention Zorro and the Lone Ranger a few times. I feel like he is affecting that as a way of being a vigilante. He knows that he's dead and he thinks he has an advantage uh, and that n- now that everyone knows I'm dead, I can fight crime in a way that I never could before. Never mind the fact that I'm not from the city and no criminal here knows who I am <laughs> anyway. But yeah, you're going to fight crime in that blue suit with that mask on. I'll go along with it. It's kind of silly, but uh, look, is it any worse than Bruce Wayne saying, ah, bat, uh, criminals are superstitious lot. I shall take on that form to scare him. I mean, Absolutely not. It's not not that far of a stretch. Yeah, it's pretty much the same thing. But what we don't get in this movie, we don't get that scene. We don't see him surrounded by bats. We don't see... (laughs) I mean, all we get is a man with no name is a man without restraint. Like, that's about all we get here, why he decides to do this. But he's such on the straight and narrow that the fact that he'd go vigilante seems very out of character for him. I wish that... I would have seen him being shot, giving him an epiphany or something. And as for that mask, I understand that Will Eisner never intended this character to have a mask. His editor's like, if he's a hero, where's the mask? And he just drew this on. But this is no Clark Kent where when you're in the presence of Superman, you're so awed that you just don't look at his face. Here, how does anybody who ever met Denny not know who the spirit is? Well, he's in Central City, not Armpit. So there's no one really knows who he is. He has no reputation here. The only people that met him are, well, yeah, they. you'd think that the villainous would keep a, a record of him. The Pajel and Ellen, you know, who has the crush on him. And, and they're like having this giggling hot tub scene where, <laughs> where they're talking about, ooh, the spirit, he's... He's so dreamy. He's my fantasy. But uh, I'm not sure what the fantasy is. That scene would have gone a totally different way in the porn parody of this, by the way. Yeah, I I feel like the fantasy might be something else. I think Steven D'Souza had a different fantasy (laughs) that wasn't ready for ABC television. Well, I, I just find it funny. Like, we get to know who the spirit is through this montage where he's stopping crime. And it's just, it is the broadest crimes possible. Like, someone's smashing a window open and stealing jewelry. I'm like, this central city is not very sophisticated when it comes to its criminals. This was the opening credits, right? I mean, with the music and all the mm. random crimes. I'm like, well, here, they're just taking the opening credits and calling it a montage. Yeah, it feels like it should be with the theme even. Dun, 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 dun. I mean, yeah, it, it's it's really working. It's how I would expect this show to begin every week is seeing this whole setup here where jewelry thieves and bank robbers and what have you. He, he, with one punch, he can take them down. Now, he is not supernatural. He survived his wounds really by having good constitution. Maybe Yubi knows how to... Yubi helped him, yeah. You know, pluck out a bullet, but he doesn't have magical powers. He can be killed. 
in this version that we're talking about tonight, yes. Like, he is just a man that's wearing a mask. And, and that's true of the comic as well. There was no... Oh, okay. I mean, the, yeah, there was that experiment that put him in suspended animation, which is the reason why they thought he was dead. But he didn't rise up with supernatural powers. And again, I go back to the Phantom and so many of these other... Yeah, Lone Ranger is just a more urban one. Central City, I'm guessing he's supposed to be in Chicago back in the days of Capone versus... Sunny L.A. It was New York originally. Oh, it was. Yeah. With the name Central City, I just went central. But it just seems like it's it's an old-fashioned notion and probably works against it in the modern era is that if we want to see people in extravagant outfits, goddamn, they better have something special about them to fight off the name callers <laughs> and hecklers. <laughs> and when you're just wearing a silly outfit and all you can do is punch, it feels kind of... Misguided. You look like the idiot. Not nothing super about you. But he is just in a suit. At least he's not wearing his underwear outside the suit and cape. I mean, he's just got the silly little domino mask on. And yeah, this feels dialed back. But you know, unlike the Phantom, who's going to wear purple spandex everywhere. I mean, yeah, Billy I Zane, mean, he... we are coming for you. <laughs> no, we're not. That is not on the schedule. <laughs> And I can't think of a day where it will be. But uh, but that is where all of this is coming from. And I do wonder whether... It just seems like these kind of characters, Dick Tracy, Phantom, Shadow, they're never popular when they come back. There's always something too arch and old-fashioned about them to, to really kick ass. And certainly, all this fight choreography is not ass-kicking. The epitome of this is, of course, the recent Green Hornet, right? I mean, oof. <laughs> Didn't see it. Yeah, but I, I feel like this could work if this was, uh, pun not intended, the spirit of the spirit. Like, if you got that sexiness and that humor that Eisner had, I could go along with the dude in a blue suit just punching people. Like, I don't need superpowers. I, I could have, you know, it, it's more urban James Bond type feel. I could go with that, but I'm oh, not going to okay. get that in this TV pilot. Yeah, well, there is some elements of sexiness there's hints of it but it, it's never su very successful at it i mean i haven't read the spirit i'm not implying that they've captured what will eisner did i would have no way of knowing but you mentioned sexiness and i do feel like they do try to play that up here to maybe not great effect between denny slash the spirit and ellen they have this whole relationship where he's working for her dad and her dad knows that denny is the spirit but they're not telling their daughter and She's always wanting to peek behind the mask. She's always calling him a pervert. And, you know, they keep having these run-ins in, like, the ladies' washroom and what have you. Yeah, I don't, I don't blame her after he sneaks her out of that bathroom for no reason and, like, gets his face up in her skirt. Yeah, tearing off her clothes. Yeah, all of it feels like a strained attempt to, you know, again, I, I think Cary Grant and those 30s wonderful romantic screwball comedies, that must be what they were going for. I mean, my mind was going to the 30s, like, if... This could actually work if they captured that Cary Grant 30 screwball comedy. Like, I could see what they're going for. It's there. Even in the fuzzy YouTube version, I, I could see what they want to do. Yeah. It's just not doing it, though. And again, you could blame the actors. They're not great, but they're okay for TV. I think they're acceptable. I really think it's the writing. I think it's the fact that there, there's no material here to make us laugh. The plot, the art forgery thing. I mean, who even cares, right? If you can even follow what's going 
going on, that there is, yeah, museum pieces being made in replica. At some point, he stumbles into a warehouse. I don't even know why he's there or who gave him the tip-off. But he has one of many fights in which he loses, gets knocked out, and someone has to save him. Yeah, he doesn't seem like the greatest hero, but I think we, we need that peril. And you keep mentioning Batman 66. That was the trope every Batman 66 is halfway through. They are in mortal peril. Will the Cape Crusader survive? Tune in next time. And I think that's what they were going for here when they have him dangling over that vat of acid where they were going to melt down a statue and now they're going to melt him down. And I think that was also just part of the the character is like he would always get in these binds and Yubi or Ebony in the comic would come and save him or one of the many femme fatales that he had a relationship would actually end up coming and saving him. Like he is kind of this like goofy character that trips over himself. And that's a lot of fun. He's not this infallible Superman or Iron Man is, is that he's very human. Does he dress up in disguises? They have a real weird bit here where he decides to play like he's an old art historian or something to go chat up the curator and Pagel. Basically, he's dropping uh, false information that he's getting a copy of that manuscript that the killer thought they had taken all copies away of. And so thus he's baiting the killer to the graveyard where, again, he loses a fight and is dragged <laughs> off again. You're saying that this is the, the comic is about a loser that keeps fumbling? <laughs> No, not so much a loser, but it's someone that's fallible. It's someone, I mean, there was a huge ensemble of characters in that comic. And again, he would always end up saving the day, but he wasn't a Clark Kent or a Bruce Wayne dressing up and becoming this great superhero. He wasn't like that. He could get punched out. And so he'd get punched out and one of his many fatales would come and save him. He got the upper hand too sometimes, but he was a more human character. He's much more relatable. Uh, Will Eisner said he wanted to make a middle-class superhero, basically. But did he wear disguises? Was that a thing that he impersonated people? Yeah, he he was a detective, so he could go undercover to find the clues. And uh, it wasn't something they did all the time, but every once in a while, yeah. I got the sense that maybe they would do that every week on the show, that each week he'd dress up as... That's the sense I got from this pilot is, yeah, that was something they'd do often, put Sam Jones in a, a beard and a wig. Yeah, they did that to uh, George Papard on A-Team, too. They just were big there on you the go. makeup. Yeah, that's what that is. But there was this scene that made me realize I needed to figure out who the hell Pagel was because I'm like, <laughs> why is she hanging out with the curator? I know she was at the fundraiser. I thought she was just a socialite. I never caught. I don't think they make a big enough deal that this is the Roxton Museum, you know, and she's Roxton and that that's all the relation there. So I'm like, wait, is she the curator's daughter? What's going on? I was really confused. Uh, we're told things, but they don't have the money to put up a sign that says Roxton Museum. You know, like there's some information you'd like visually that they just can't provide. And so only because I was writing down things in notes did I take note of these things. Yeah, we're told early on that she was married. She's a widow now, but she's married to the guy who owned the museum. But yeah, I didn't know what her name was. I'm like, oh, wait, she's the big villain in this. Let me go to IMDb to look up who this character is. Yeah, I actually looked her up as well, and apparently Pigel 
was a constant villain of the spirit who has a history of marrying men and then yeah. they die off. That's her. She's that black widow type. And so I guess they're trying to pay homage to it here. And you know what? Having gone through so many Marvel TV movies like Doctor Strange, where they brought in those characters that what was it, Morgana or something. I'm going to give them props for trying to bring in and modernize the characters from, at this point, a 50-year-old comic strip. I think they did a decent job. I'll say this. If you get a rogues gallery of the spirit, it's almost all female. Like, you have the ah, octopus. But okay. the rest, they're again, they're all femme fatale. Sans serif and Pajel. And all, just, they all have their different angle. Like, one loves diamonds. And Pajel is like this international. Yeah, she goes and marries people. And they end up mysteriously dying. And she gets the inheritance. Like, uh, this is who the spirit is going after, is women. It's And he's having, you know, like that Batman and Catwoman relationship as he's fighting them. Although I did look up his origin story and he fought someone named Cobra that had poisoned him, knocked him out, and it looked like he was dead and they buried him yeah. before he was, you know, actually, he, he woke up buried alive and punched his way out. And they decided not to do that because I guess, as you said, it's more fun when the spirit is fighting a woman. Yeah, and like I said, there, there are characters like the octopus, male characters, but the whole draw was to watch this detective fighting the femme fatales and this female cast that were drawn sexily. I definitely feel there's a little bit of kink going on when he ends up shirtless on a rack and she's like kissing him and trying to make him one of her henchmen. I mean, you know, it's ABC TV, guys. It's it's not going to be super kinky, but I do feel like they were kind of playing with that here when he's imprisoned and Pajal is monologuing her master plan. I wish they would have done a little bit more of that. I think it could have been more interesting than it was. As it was, it just felt so dang rote. It's rote, yeah. I mean, we're looking for the fun. It's not easily apparent, I think, during this pilot. Yeah, it's it's just weird, like, the shortcuts they take to get this plot to move along. Like, they catch the spirit. He's on the rack. While he's unconscious, he moans Ellen's name. So they're like, well, I guess we got to go get her too. So they capture Ellen who happens to be at the museum. I guess there's another fundraiser or something going on. <laughs> More of the same kids. Yeah, I don't know. How how much money do they need? What will they do <laughs> when they get the money? I couldn't figure it out. The museum is never open. There's never anybody <laughs> paying to enter. And they have all these exhibits. I think they need more money. Obviously, the show needs more money. Could we bring out the kids to get a better graveyard set? <laughs> Just take the money from the kids. They all got money to bet on who's going to win the race yeah, between that's, them. That's kind of fun there. But yeah, it's not even an art museum. It's mostly like a natural history museum. There's a lot of dioramas with like yaks. So I mean, Ellen's put into an Iron Maiden. Yes. <laughs> at this point. Like, it, they're going real gruesome here. There's spikes coming out. Oh, that's fun. You got to have one of those like cliffhanger, go to commercial. Sure enough. You know, the spikes are coming at her. Time to cut away to commercial. Keep you excited. Keep you tuned in. The the camera angle actually killed it for me. I wish there was more suspense there. But from the way it was, I'm like, are those spikes anywhere near her? I couldn't get a sense of her eminent danger. They kept the spirit in the foreground that whole time. It was kind of disappointing. I just I wish I could have gotten into the action as it was, though. You know, I go back to what you said, Stuart. TV is not meant to be watched the way I watch this with the lights off and paying full attention. 
Obviously not enough attention to give a damn who Pagel was, but full attention. <laughs> if, if this was on while like SpaghettiOs and other 80s foods were cooking in the kitchen, it probably would be fine enough. Yeah, I, I, again, I don't think anybody making this thought that they were making a movie. You know, they were filming the pilot for something that they hoped would get picked up. And, you know, that was back in an age where they would let uh, a series that got greenlit go for 22, 23 episodes before it got canceled. So you didn't have to be great out of the box. There was no real pressure to perform really well. They they knocked this thing out in like a 16-day shoot and... You know, it is what it is. Do you wish it were better? It wouldn't cut the mustard in today's crowded TV market, but I do feel like in 1986-87, you would have seen a lot of shows staged and filmed exactly this way. And I I can't tell you, I mean, putting crippled children in jeopardy as a as a final plot and maybe they would do that i don't know but yeah they're gonna blow up the museum with all these kids sitting around a cake yeah i don't understand why they're gonna blow up the museum i guess to cover their track i guess yes. it's all fakes in the museum anyway yeah because i'm a villain and i'm ready to make my exit and the good guy has caught me so i'm gonna blow everything up and kill innocent lives yeah it, it didn't even seem strategic where they were putting these plastic explosives like i'm like uh, is that really gonna bring the whole thing down it just seems like you're randomly putting them but you and i were thinking the exact same thing jacob and we have watched way too many movies or, or studied way too much about exactly which support <laughs> structure and load-bearing beams we need to blow up yeah wasn't that die hard didn't they do that in die hard like put it yeah. all around the building yeah i think die hard's a little bit better than this movie i could be wrong <laughs> yes yes yeah. But Pichelle's escape plan here is the exact same as Han Gruber's. It is. It is. Although she she's more successful. She does get away with the uh, gardener or the butler or something. Hey, I do know, though, that just like Die Hard, if you set up a watch at the beginning, that's going to come into play at the end. They follow that rule. You set up a giant cake. Someone's going to have to fall on that. <laughs> hey, you say that. All I cared about was the swords. I see that the spirit breaks out and he's going to fight Bruno in a room full of swords. <laughs> and I'm like, there better be a sword fight. There better be a sword fight. It's it's a lackluster sword fight, but there is a sword fight. Yeah, that ends up in a giant cake. Yeah, no, I, I agree with, with both of you. It was it was like, oh, good. I, there was, there's a part of you that just wants it to happen. You know, yes, yes. suit of armor and giant cake. You got to get in there. And, you know, it is what it is. I don't want to oversell it. But there is some glee to watching a big giant cake being destroyed by two men fighting. But when shirtless spirit falls into the cake, I expect like a Chippendales joke. <laughs> no, that's the problem. Like none of the jokes or puns ever work in this. What I do find funny is, though, they go to Pajel's house to get her and the spirit. He's wearing a trench coat, still covered in <laughs> cake, still shirtless. Yeah. He is committed. I mean, that that has bullet holes in it, that trench coat. And he's Look, there's no <laughs> Flash Gordon 2 coming out anytime soon. Sam Jones got to commit himself to this. Yeah, he was available for <laughs> many seasons that were never to be. It's a shame, though. I mean, Pajel with those garters and everything on that last scene with the gardener. I'm like, I, I would watch a spinoff of her. Yes. <laughs> I don't think, I, don't, I imagine she'd come back. I mean, obviously for her to, to live, she would come back and, but she wouldn't be the villain every week. I imagine if there's a rogues gallery, we would get lots of different villains. Yeah, I'm sure the octopus would show up and we get a different femme fatale every week. We get Sans Serif and Silken Floss and they rotate from episode to episode. Oh, and I think they'd even go just more road. I think they'd have just, 
the standard person of the week. I'm thinking about the episodes. There would be a bookworm equivalent going from Batman 66. I'm thinking there would be like an environmentalist or maybe a college student radical, you know, a nuclear arms dealer. Just the topics of the day that all those shows went along. I mean, somebody who's blackmailing good people. So, you know, he would have a lot of different villains, not just ones out of the comic, if this were a weekly series to go on week after week. Yep, I'm I'm with you both on that. I do feel like, yes, eventually, keep in mind, with the TV season being 22, 24 episodes long, yeah, it wouldn't just be what Will Eisner created. They would create their own world, and it probably wouldn't end up looking very much like what was in comic books, if it even does now. The big question I have is, would he ever change his clothes? I mean, maybe that's why... This isn't just the beginning of a beautiful relationship, but a weird one, too, because, yeah, I don't think he's ever going to change that suit. <laughs> so the other question I have is, Jacob Stewart, do you recommend The Spirit? Jacob. Um, Look, this is the best TV thing we've watched in a while. Like, I could see what they were going for in this, and I wish the writing was better because I think they could have pulled off something that was entertaining. If they were able to really get into that dirty screwball sense of comedy and if these jokes landed and like I could go with these actors I didn't really so much have a problem with the actors it was the writing here and you know even that goofy haunted house set that your neighbor would do at Halloween I that didn't even totally ruin it for me I, I could see what they wanted to do here they just failed at it they didn't they didn't have a script that pulled that off but I you know I might watch another episode if there is one available but I'm not going to recommend this. It's not a recommend, but it's not the strong, disgusting not recommend that I expected going into it. Stuart. Yeah, it's refreshingly mediocre. And that is such, that is its own success, right? Like you want to jump up and down and give it a green arrow by not being horrible like all of these superhero TV movies have been. I mean, I can only think of one that I ever gave a green arrow to, and it's Doctor Strange, that 78 Doctor Strange weirdo thing, which I just enjoyed as a TV movie Argento thing, and looking forward to the Marvel version this fall as well, but this is not as good as that, and that's why, unfortunately, I can't go green. I wanted to. There were there were elements here that I did enjoy, but by and large, yeah, it is the lack of fun in the writing. The chemistry between the characters is not there, and the, and the the story, whatever. I mean, I'm not going to judge it based on an art forgery storyline. It's a bad plot, but it's the chemistry. What you want to see in a pilot is characters that are working together. You want to see them keep working through problems again and again. Without better writing, I wouldn't want to watch any more of this. So it's a mild not recommend. And again, a victory in its own way, but I got to go with my usual red arrow. Yes, it is your usual one. <laughs> Can I give this a vibrant blue arrow of ambivalence? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the arrow, the color of his suit that just maybe it goes down and then comes back up again. I mean, here's the thing is we review movies. We don't review TV series. And you know what I find very frustrating? And I've tried it myself, like with that Incredible Hulk blog, <laughs> is people who review every episode of a TV series and try to treat it like it's a movie. I mean, you have to look back at a whole season and say, okay, was this episode setting something up? It may not have been great to watch in and of itself, but especially in the day of binge watching, 
what was its purpose overall, not I watched last night's episode of Arrow, did, was I amused and enthralled? But that's not what we do. We review movies. So I have to review this as a movie, a very short movie, which is in its benefit. Or I think it's still longer than Jonah Hex. <laughs> Only if you take away the credits. <laughs> but it's still a movie about bad art forgery. So I can't recommend anybody really watch this. If it were a TV series and I was 12, as I was back then, I probably would have watched it, though. I loved Sledgehammer. I I watched the Char Racer crying out loud, though. I mean, I probably would have watched this as it would take me back just a few years to when I was watching Batman 66. But truthfully, watching it as an adult, I think the biggest problem here is the actors. I was excited to be seeing an actress I knew from Star Trek. She's terrible. She's got awful. She was never great in Star Trek, but here she's just horribly miscast. She is not bubbly, lovey, fawning girl. And Sam J. Jones, I liked him so much better in this than I did in Flash Gordon, which I did rewatch around the time of Ted just to reaffirm my hatred for it. And yes, I do. Here, I think he's fine, but he doesn't really click with anybody. Yubi, Commissioner Dolan, Ellen, even Pigel. I feel like everybody is walking around without any coherent direction. And so, sorry, Last Dragon director, but I can't think you did a very good job of keeping this together. Maybe because it's on a television production schedule and not the longer one you had was shown off, but... No, it is going to be a red arrow, but you know what? I'm not dispirited over this because Agreed. next week we've got a big budget, stylish version of this, and I'm intrigued by this character. I have seen the origin story now. I'm curious to see what the hell Frank Miller's going to do with him. I'm not <laughs> curious about that. I've seen the trailer. <laughs> I've seen the movie. I, yeah. And I went to Comic-Con <laughs> when he talked about it. I think it's going to be very, very bad, Arnie, and I would be dispirited to think about that. But I'm happy, at least, that we've had a movie, or whatever you want to call this, that is, again, pleasantly mediocre. This, there's nothing offensive about this. And so, yeah, whatever next week ends up being, at least it's not been a complete, total, terrible, anguishing time for me. I, I, I'm already liking Spirit better than much of DC teams. You've forgotten all about Ice and the Atom. <laughs> I haven't forgotten. I wish I could. <laughs> well, we will be discussing that on Tuesday. And then the week after that... We're going to discuss another comic book superhero, well, not super, but heroic team. What was it? Men in Black is IDW? It's complicated. Marvel owned the rights at one time. I don't think they still do, but yeah, we'll be talking about Men in Black. We vowed never to do this, guys. I just want to point out that- Never say never. Another broken <laughs> promise. <laughs> Several years ago, we had a- public forum in which people could vote for either as a donation series Men in Black trilogy or a very loose Spielberg trilogy of Close Encounters, E.T. and War of the Worlds, and that one. So now let's do the series less people wanted to pay for. <laughs> but hey, it's it's also being tied in with Independence Day. Alien invasions for everyone. Yes, 
In order to be silver level, you need to have five installments. And so we will be doing Men in Black Trilogy in two weeks. And once that's finished, we're going to take some time off. But we will be coming back to finish out silver level at the end of June, beginning of July, in time for Independence Day. I guess it's a Will Smith tie, but we're putting into the same silver level retrospective Independence Day, the 96 alien invasion, Roland Emmerich, Will Smith extravaganza that Arnie loves and the sequel that they couldn't pay Will Smith enough money to come back and do. Yeah, I think we're basically calling Silver Level Donation the series Will Smith won't return to series. <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. But in the meantime, as we take that break for gold, we're going to go back in time 30 years. Let's face it. Now playing has gone on far longer than I think anybody on this show thinks we would have. Podcasts do not often last 10 years, which is what we're going to be hitting pretty soon. And when we just do film series, well, we're kind of going to have to get a little bit more creative. We decided we want to stick with aliens and sci-fi. I mean, Independence Day, Men in Black. So we're just going to go back 30 years to the summer of 86, which was a big alien invasion movie summer. Yeah, it had Howard the Duck and Aliens, <laughs> two favorites we've already covered. We're going to cover some movies that aren't parts of longer franchises or retrospectives, or are, but uh, we'll never get around to them. So here they are, all collected in a little neat package we're calling Sci-Fi of Summer 1986. Beginning with Critters. Yes, Critters came out in April of 1986. Yes, there were four of them. No, we're never doing that franchise, but we will be talking about all four Critters movies in the kickoff to Gold Level Donation, followed by Invaders from Mars, the Toby Hooper remake that came out in early June of that summer. I think we could review that by just going back and culling all the times we've referenced <laughs> it over the 10 years we've been reviewing movies. Well, we brought up Toby so many times with Poltergeist and Texas Chainsaw and Life Force. But yes, here we finally get to talk about probably the only other movie of his we'd ever want to talk about. Yeah, I remember seeing this in the theaters with a double feature with Top Gun. And I know which one I liked more. <laughs> I saw this in theaters with a friend of mine, and then we came out and checked my sister's boyfriend's backs of their neck. We were that freaked out. <laughs> wow. And then it's kind of sci-fi. It's in space, at least. Space Camp. <laughs> Another movie I remember seeing. Kate Capshaw. <laughs> oh. Willie. She's going to go into outer space with a bunch of kids. Actually, she was just supposed to go to NASA camp with them, but then, like, a robot sends them to space or something. Yeah, a 2001 HAL kind of mistake. They actually get sent in a rocket ship to outer space and have to figure out how to get back. I hope they were awake for all those lectures. Yeah, these are films so far I remember seeing in the theaters. Wow. I remember this coming out in theaters. I have never seen Space Camp, so it's time to fix that. Yeah, young Joaquin Phoenix. Yeah, you're going to have a lot of fun with it. It is 2001 for the children's set. After that, we took a couple more weeks to come out. Not quite sci-fi, but, you know, with David Bowie's passing recently, I felt we had to cover it. Uh, Jim Henson Workshop, working with David Bowie, produced Labyrinth, a popular movie now, a box office bomb in summer of 1986. We're going to be covering that one. Yeah, saw it in the theaters, never revisited it. 
But I, I am interested just because of Bowie's passing to check it out again. I watched Labyrinth and Legend on the same day, Ugh, and I remember Legend. I I keep getting confused which is which, so I'm looking forward to straightening it all out. Legend's the boring one. After that, we've had many, many requests for this one, and we never could figure out where to put it. Well, it came out in July of 1986, Big Trouble in Little China. Oh, Carpenter. Eh, maybe more horror than sci-fi. It's got a lot of mysticism, so it, it counts. We're throwing it in here. Green-Eyed Girls and Dragons. And if, if they ever do a sequel, yes, we will cover that one. We're never doing Critters 4, but we may do Big Trouble 2 if they get that off the ground. But for now, <laughs> I don't think they're ever getting it off the ground. Around. Is someone talking about that? Constantly. A sequel to that movie? Yeah. Huh. Yeah. That was, it was a big bomb. Again, uh, we're, we're covering all the things <laughs> that didn't do well, basically. It's got a cult following now, though. Oh, I definitely. mean, they even got a comic book series going yeah. with Big Trouble in Little China. Definitely got a cult following. Yeah. A comic book series, I believe. A movie series. Hell, they can't even remake Escape from New York. I, I just can't see them doing that. But who knows? And to close it out, the sixth installment in the... Sci-fi of summer 1986, a little movie that you may or may not have heard. It's got a cult following. Night of the Creeps, Tom Atkins. Good news and bad news. I know Tom Atkins. This came within a hair's breadth of being one of my picks for our book. Oh, okay. Well, then we know where you stand with it already. I remember seeing it and loving it. Thrill me, Arnie. Thrill me. Oh, I will. I will. For $25 or more, I will thrill you. Yes, so that's gold level. A little unique, but I think a lot of fun there and a lot of nostalgia. If you like us to go back in time, and, and that's kind of what we're doing. We, we are revisiting kind of franchises of the past. That's why for Platinum, you know, who are we going to call? 1984 and Ghostbusters. The trailer's been released. They, they're rebooting it, or is it a sequel? I'm not quite sure. From the trailer, it seems like it's a sequel when, in fact, it's a reboot. Anyone who follows me on Facebook, Twitter, kind of knows my feelings, but I'm going in with an open mind. Hey, I'm excited to finally play that Ghostbusters video game that came out in 09 that I've been meaning to play. <laughs> yeah, we're covering three movies. It should be said Platinum is three movies, and that is 1984's Ghostbusters, 1989's less beloved Ghostbusters 2, and this new reboot oddity, God knows it's been in process for so many years with so many different people attached to it. I'm not discouraged. It wasn't a great trailer, but I think there's a good chance that this might be a, a fun movie to revisit or at least have some laughs. I'm going to cross my fingers and hope for the best for Ghostbusters 2016. Yes, that is our platinum donation of $35 or more. So you can help out the show and get up to 14 bonus shows you can find out all the details by clicking the banner at the top of nowplayingpodcast.com. So, Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. And now it's time for the hard goodbye. It is time. No more pain. No more suffering. Give up the ghost. Give up the spirit. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing's Spirit Retrospective Series. We hope you've enjoyed the show. I think you've overstayed your welcome, Mr. Cole. Hold on. Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another new movie review podcast. When me and the Spirit get together, we like to party all night. 
and while at nowplayingpodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this movie review with other listeners. We have to have people over more often. I like this. And in the nowplayingpodcast.com archives, you can find reviews of other comic book films, such as Superman, Batman, Spider-Man, The Avengers, X-Men, Blade, Daredevil, The Punisher, and Fantastic Four. Jesus, they're called for backup. You can also listen to our reviews of other movie series, including Mad Max, The Fast and the Furious, Mission Impossible, Star Trek, Terminator, Predator, and many more. Maybe you and your force could work a little harder. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com. I'll be seeing you again real soon. If you want even more Now Playing reviews, place your order now for the first Now Playing book, Underrated Movies We Recommend. Get reviews of 125 films our hosts love. You can order the book by clicking the banner at the top of our homepage. I mean, this is fun for me. You can follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. Links to our social media pages are available on our homepage. Everything will start to make sense, yes. Everything will make sense. Everything will start to make sense. Let's get back to business, hmm? Support from listeners like you. Help keep Now Playing operating. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Well, another day, another million in donations. That's a worthy cause. Now Playing's DC Retrospective Series is edited by Arnie. Oh, fast Now Playing credit narration by Brock. Shut up and bleed. Now Playing is not affiliated with DC Comics or Warner Brothers Pictures. DC Comics and all that the DC Universe contains are copyright and trademark Warner Brothers Entertainment, and no infringement is intended. Pardon me, but is there a point to all this? Because I'm getting old just listening to you. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Enganza Media Incorporated. You know I don't like egg on my face. Now playing as a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2016, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. Crime, especially murder, is never a laughing matter. I'm not like the spirit's done it again. I was made that Goodbye, Sam. Goodbye, Danny. Which turns out to be actually a, a zombie. Return of the Zombies, which I'd much rather hear than Whitney Houston. <laughs> and I, where could I get that album? You probably own it, Arnie, or at least on CD, I'm thinking. <laughs> and I'd much rather the Zombies return than Whitney Houston, so it all works out. <laughs> Without getting any debate about Whitney Houston, I...